It's into a subject of uh, tithing, and as I stated then, I did it by popular demand. Maybe it's not popular among everyone, but several people over the last months have asked that this subject be covered. And we saw last week, to give a brief summary, the tithing did exist in the Old Testament, and like the sacrifices and many other principles, it existed before Moses. Examples there are given of Abraham and Jacob tithing, and we saw that the increase was not limited to just agricultural products, as some seem want to say today, so that they don't have to tithe on anything else. But Abraham saw fit to tithe the spoils of war as well. So that was not agriculture by any means. That is, unless you consider killing men and returning to the soil as fertilizer. Maybe you could stretch it that far. We also saw some strong elements of God's financial system, which he did institute or codify through Moses. Many, many things were in existence long before Moses, and it's easy to see that in reading Genesis. Then God codified and added a lot of things in uh, Moses' economy that were the laws to govern a physical nation. <clears throat> so we saw that God instituted two tithes a year and one a third tithe on the third and the six years of a seven-year cycle. But that is the way he set the financial system up. Along with that was the seven-year uh, land Sabbath and the seven-year release. After seven of those, then, you had a jubilee year, the 50th year, in which all land went back to the original family. Uh, on top of that, which I did not get into, there were various offerings, such as festival offerings and so on, that were to be given as well. Now, we can see that those tithes are in Scripture, in the Old Testament, not numbered one, two, three, but by usage. You can tell that it's talking about different tithes by the use to which God had said they were to be put. One was for the Levites, one you kept to go to the feast, one you gave to the poor, the widow, the orphan, the Levite, and the stranger within your gates uh, as they needed it, but you saved it and kept it in your house until the third and the sixth, or you kept it the third and the sixth year, and then you kept it in your house to take care of those categories of people as need arose uh, in time. <clears throat> so that was the system that was set up. We identified it through Scripture, and then I read you some quotes from historians who understood just how the system worked, and they corroborated that that which we picked out of the Scriptures was indeed the way it was administered under Moses and among the physical Israelites. Now, I guess the question remaining is, does it come forward to the New Testament church? And if so, how? And what administrative uh, guidelines do we have to follow? Is it valid today? I think that is the question most people have. <laughs> most do not have a problem or misunderstand that the system was there in the Old Testament. But I wanted to lay that groundwork before getting to 
the New Testament today. Now let's bear in mind that anything you find basically in the Old Testament is carried forward to the New Testament. In principle, if not to be done exactly in the same fashion. Many things that Christ told people, and that Paul, James, Peter, John, and the others taught, were direct quotes from the Old Testament. It's been said that one-third of the New Testament is direct quotes from the Old Testament. I've not counted the words, but that's very close to it. Paul quoted the Old Testament continually and brought it forward in principle, if not in actual fact and, and practice. Some things changed. People say, well, sacrifices were done away. I've used that one very often. But no, they've not been done away at all. We just don't use the blood of bulls and goats. Christ became the sacrifice. We ourselves are to be living sacrifices. Dead sacrifices don't really help anyone, and God was never pleased with the blood of bulls and goats. He is pleased with the sacrifice of Christ and our daily sacrifices to one another and to him. That's what he is interested in. So sacrifices certainly are brought forward. Well, what about tithing? Let's turn, first of all, to Matthew 23 and read what Christ said to the Pharisees. Now, I understand that they were under the Old Covenant, uh, and Christ was speaking to people because that's the first objection people use in terms of this particular passage. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. He's telling them that they should be tithing. But they were not offered the new covenant, so some say, well, they were still under the old covenant, therefore they had to tithe, but we as New Testament Christians do not. Uh, in other words, consider the audience Christ was addressing at that point. I have a question for you. Would he bring it forward and even talk about it if there was not some intent on his part? to have a certain validity to it. Now, I know that this does not prove anything. But I do want to lay the background and show that Christ did approve tithing. It was within his teachings. The only question that people have an objection is, to whom was he talking? I want to throw another one in here at this point. To us, it might seem onerous or difficult to consider giving God 10%, keeping 10% to attend his holy days, and every third and sixth year, keeping a third tithe, 10%, to give the poor and those in that category. Plus offerings. Now, most governments of men on this earth today require more than that of people. And I covered that a, a little bit last week. By the time you add gas taxes, bread taxes, clothing taxes, income taxes, 
and every other kind of tax that man has been able to imagine or devise, you're paying far, far more than God's financial plan uh, required. I think that the main rub comes when God requires this of you, and then man requires more on top of that. Because God's financial system for Israel took care of all the needs of society. It took care of the spiritual needs of the nation through first tithe. It took care of the spiritual needs of the people through second tithe to attend his feasts and worship him. And it took care of those less fortunate in society through third tithe. And it took care of your spiritual attitude through offerings. So it was a complete financial system, and it virtually guaranteed that no one would either be poor or remain poor by having the seventh year release and by having the jubilee. Basically, all debt was retired after six years, and all land was given back after 49 years. So therefore, your family could not stay poor more than a maximum of 49 years. Couldn't happen. It was given back. But man is not willing to follow the system. Now, under Herbert Armstrong, we did follow it. And you know what? As I think back, it worked. It was very difficult for people. <clears throat> and as I was growing up post-World War II, most people were fairly poor. And it was difficult to keep a first, a second, and then especially on top of that, a third time. But people sacrificed. They went without. They did much to be able to keep all the tithing laws. I remember as a child that I had three empty Band-Aid boxes. And I had first tithe on one, second tithe on one, and third tithe on the other. And as I worked hoeing cotton or driving tractor for my granddaddy or whatever else I did, I would divide those out. I think I mentioned that last week, but it's something we did. And over the years, I have encountered many, many people who said, yes, it was hard, but it seemed like, especially in the third tithe year, God made up the difference. Somehow, some way, he did it. You know, I may amend something I said last week. I got to thinking about a particular scripture, and I hope I remember to bring it up when I get to that scripture. I don't want to do it now because I want to address that scripture at the time about third tithe. And whether or not I can let you off the hook by saying the government may be taking care of that for you. I don't know that what that might be presumptuous to say that, and I certainly don't want to give you advice that softens or compromises anything God has said that would get you in trouble with him. So, I'll try to remember to comment on that at that time. But I need to first prove whether we should be keeping ties or not, I guess. So let's get on with that, because you're going to object to anything I say about first, second, or third if you don't believe you ought to be tithing in the New Testament anyway. So let's get 
into that and figure that out ahead of time first. The one I was turning to is Luke 18. And that's what precipitated the comments about how difficult sometimes it was to keep all the tithes and the offerings, God's complete financial plan, uh, and yet how we were blessed by it. Now that does not include the abuses that occur, the misuse of the tithes, and always after people to give more, give more, give more, give more, and that old broken record that we heard for years. That was abusive, and it was wrong. And you will not hear that here from Nelson, from Larry, or from me. We don't, do not and will not ask you for more. It is difficult enough in these times, especially with what the government lays on us, to do what God requires of us in spite of what the world says. So far be it from me to ask you to give any more than that. But in Luke 18, verse 12, the Pharisee stood before Christ and said, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing up smote his breast, bowed his head, wouldn't lift his eyes, and said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. Is this the one where he says, yes, verse 22, I won't read the whole context for sake of time. He said, yes, you lack one thing. Oh, this is the good, the, uh, the young man that uh, came up in the uh, sermonette. Sell all that you have, verse 22, and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. All. You think first, second, and third times a lot. In this particular case, because of the man's spiritual problem, Christ said, give it all, every bit that you have, and come and follow me. Now, there may come a time in the near future in which we have to give up everything we have, homes, lands, mother, father, brother, sister, wife, husband, and follow him, if we are to live and if we are to be a part of this kingdom. We need to know that that is in here. That the New Testament is even more compelling by far than the Old Testament ever was in terms of what we owe God and who owns everything. Well, even in the Old Testament, he said, all the gold and all the silver is mine. So it's all his anyway. He allows us to use it, to benefit from it. But when we get to the bottom line, it's all his. And we may be required to give up everything we have and follow Jesus Christ wherever he leads. That doesn't leave you much, does it? You have to give it all. It doesn't leave much at all. Except that, through that, you get eternal life, which is riches, and health and wealth and security forevermore. So everything you might have on this earth is a pretty small price to pay when you put it in that context. Very small price to pay, because what we have here, we can't take with us, can we? We're going to lose it all anyway when we turn our toes up. God says you might need to give it before you turn your toes up. And walk by faith and say, give me this day my daily bread and something to hide this ugly nakedness. 
we may come to that point. In fact, I will be surprised if we don't come to that point because of these scriptures. Now, let's look at some of those that have been used in terms of the financial system. Let's go, first of all, to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. And see what right or what power Paul said he had. Chapter 9, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. And they had seen him preach the truth. He knew they, they were his uh, sheep in Christ. For the seal of my apostleship are you in the eternal. God worked through him to bring them to the truth and to teach them righteousness. So he says, do we not have power to eat and to drink? Should not he, as a minister, as an apostle, eat and drink? Other people eat and drink. Should he not? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the eternal, and Peter? See, the other apostles were married. Paul wasn't. For I only and Barnabas have not we power to forbear working? Do we have to make tents? Do we need to work? Do we have a power beyond that? Now, he volunteered to work at times to make tents. But he's asking a question here. Do we have the power to do differently than that which he sometimes did? That's the question. Then he brings forth some principles in verse 7. Who goes a warfare at any time at his own charges? If you go into the U.S. military, do you pay for your food and your clothing and your barracks and your transportation and your ammunition? No. If you go to war, somebody else takes care of your living expenses, so you are free to kill people put it bottom line with war. Who plants a vineyard and eats not of the fruit thereof? And he had planted a vineyard among these people under Christ. For who feeds a flock and eats not of the milk of the flock? Say, I think these things as a man, or says not the law the same also? He says, is this my human carnal reasoning, or is there a law? Now, why would he have referred to a law if he thought the law was done away with? Because he's using the law as the axis for his argument. <clears throat> why would you talk to New Testament people and use the law as your fulcrum or your pivotal point if the law was all done away with? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? Or says he altogether for our sakes? Very interesting statement he makes here. Paul is saying the Old Testament is written for the New Testament church. 
He's saying these things in the law of Moses were written for us. New Testament so-called Christendom would do away with all the Old Testament, save Psalms and Proverbs, which they pack on the back of some Bibles because they have nice poetry and good thoughts. But Paul considered the Old Testament an integral part of his ministry. He didn't have the New Testament yet. <laughs> so he taught from the Old Testament and brought those principles forward. He did not mention tithe specifically here, <clears throat> but he did mention the principle of not muzzling the ox who treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? No, he says, for our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he that plows should plow in hope, and he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown to you spiritual things, is it a great thing if you shall reap your carnal things? Which is more important, our physical, human, carnal things, or the spiritual things? We have a society out here who is living carnally, physically, materially, and as far as they know, they have no hope of anything beyond roughly 70 years on this earth. That's all they have to look forward to. Some Protestants try to tell them they're going to go to heaven and be a spook, but that doesn't offer too much hope, really. <clears throat> so which is more important? Now, Paul is saying, we have the right to take of your physical things. That's what he's saying here. If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we, rather, the U.S. government can tax you, the state can tax you, the county can tax you, uh, anyone can tax you, but he says, does not the church have first claim? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, referring to the Levitical priesthood? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. They ate of the sacrifices that came there. Even so, as the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. <clears throat> now he said Christ gave every authority, every power, that the ministry should live of the gospel. Now, some will say, well, yeah, that's offerings. That doesn't mean tithe. He doesn't mention tithe here. We'll get to that eventually. I ask you, if you read the Old Testament, <clears throat> where is power given to take funds of the people? What passages would you go to? Are there any back there that say, you needn't tithe, just give offerings? Now, if Paul has power to take the carnal things of the people of the New Testament church, where did he get that authority? We are to live by every word of God. The scripture cannot be broken. 
any power and any authority he had had to have had its roots in Scripture. And yet, the only power and authority you can find in Scripture to keep a financial plan are those Scriptures having to do with tithing. In other words, the only root that Paul could go back to and bring forward would be the tithing laws. He did bring a general principle here of not muzzling the ox that spreads out the corn, which was not even, if you go back and read it, speaking of the tithing system. But he brought forward that principle. Now notice verse 15. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be done or so done to me, for it were better for me to die that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He said he had to do it willingly, not as a hireling, in other words. He had been commissioned to preach, and whether he got paid to preach or not had nothing to do with it. I feel the same way. That when Herbert Armstrong put his hands on my head along with the other evangelists and told me to preach, I had no choice but to do that whether anybody paid me or not. It's something you simply have to do. You cannot be a hireling and say, I'm not going to preach if you don't pay me. In fact, when we formed this little organization, I asked the question at our first organizational meeting at the Peace that year, do you want me to work for a living and do this on the side, or do you want me to be full-time for you? And the answer was, he wanted me to do it the way we are doing it. I would have been quite willing to do as Paul did. Now, he was writing to new churches, and you have to keep that in mind. There was a time when he said, I didn't require anything of you, but uh, not eat things offered to idols or things with the blood. Now, does that mean that forevermore he never taught them anything else? No, they were new. And he had to start on whatever level they were on and begin to work from there. <clears throat> and he did not want to lay tithing or offerings, for that matter, on these people in Corinth right off the bat. But he made it very clear here that he had the power to do that. That power had to have been derived from Scripture and, as he said, directly from Christ. But did Christ ever teach anything that was not scriptural? No, he did not. He often quoted the Old Testament. And all of his New Testament teachings had their roots in the Old Testament. All he did in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was raise the standard from a physical level to a spiritual level. He didn't do away with anything. He just changed it to fit the New Testament administration, whether it be sacrifices, whether it be anything else. 
I don't think you can find anything in any of Christ's teachings. Now, I haven't searched through here and looked to see if I could find any little thing. But I do not believe, if you were to do that, that you could find anything that did not have its roots in the Old Testament and was brought forth by principle, if not by the letter. So here he does not require offerings or tithing of these people, but he makes it clear that that power and that authority is there. Now let's go to First Timothy, well first of all, let's go to Second Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11. Now, I know these scriptures have been used back and forth, some to say that you must tithe, and others use the same scriptures to show you must not. I want to cover all of them, and then we'll get to some others. Second Corinthians uh, 11. Now, he's writing to the same people a different letter at a later date. Let's pick it up in verse 8. I robbed other churches taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted or had need, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so will I keep myself. Their spiritual condition was such that he was willing to take whatever monies came from Macedonia or other churches and take the money that they either offered or tithed and use it to administer Corinth. He's telling Corinth, I will not take anything of you, but I will take what others have provided in other churches and use it to take care of you. I should have thought they would begin to feel a bit of a conscience problem at that point. Why not use the tithes or offerings that came from Macedonia to take care of Macedonia and those which came from Corinth to take care of Corinth? Now, people use the one we just used in 1 Corinthians 9 to say, well, Paul didn't take money of the people. And yet they'll leave out this one, which says, I took money from those people to take care of you. Now, what I have tried to do in the administration of funds that come in, let's say in South Africa, is use those funds to take care of the South Africans. To send some over for the beast, to go over myself to visit with the people, uh, to supply whatever needs they might have in terms of equipment, or poverty, or whatever, we use their funds to take care of them. Now, if they do not have enough, at times I have used monies that come from the United States to provide transportation or part of it for them. So in that sense, we have robbed the United States to take care of the Africans, because they did not have enough. But they are not in the situation that Corinth was in, where they were that new. What we have today in the church is a lot of veterans who have been around for 20, 30, 40 years. So we should not have to approach them as Paul approached the Corinthians the first time. 
Now, I think he's laying a bit of a guilt trip on them here. He said, I'm not planning on taking anything from you, but I am using those people's money to take care of you. And that shows also again that he had authority to take the money from Macedonia and indeed did take the money from Macedonia. So don't use 1 Corinthians 9 to say Paul didn't take funds from the churches because he obviously did and then shamed these people with it. I know the question remains, but was it tithe? Was it just offerings? We'll get to it. First Timothy 5. This is a pastoral administration book that he wrote to Timothy on how to run the ministry, how to run the churches, how to administer the churches in that day and age. Uh, verse 16. If any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged. Now that is obviously a reference to money. Okay? The context is talking about money. When you have widows and relief and charging, it means physical things to take care of widows and orphans. So the context here certainly includes money. Now you get down to verse 17, and these people say, well, this doesn't have anything to do with money in this context. Well, they're not reading the context, because verse 16 does mention money, not in so many words, but certainly in charging. Now if I charge you something... As you come through the counter, what is that? Well, it's money. How much do I owe you? Well, I, with tax, that'll be $13.17, people will say often. Let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. People really got upset in worldwide over ministerial salaries and travel perks and peace perks, and I have a problem with what was done. But we need to understand that God has always, in the Old Testament, taken care of the Levitical priesthood or the Melchizedek priesthood, whichever you refer to, and seen that it was done well. Because why? Because God considers the spiritual more important than anything else. Eternal life and our relationship with God is more important than anything else. So the most important job on earth is taking care of people's spiritual needs. Because only if your spiritual needs are taken care of can you be a part of the kingdom of God. Why else does God say, cry aloud and spare not, and tell my people their sins, except that unless he wants them to quit sinning so they can be a part of the kingdom of God? So he gave the family of Aaron 1% of the gross national product of Israel. That one family of Aaron. And he gave 9% to the rest of the Levites. Now, what would that equate to today 
If you were to give 1% of the gross national product of America to one family, and the other 9% to the rest of the ministry, I mean, whether they be Methodist, Baptist, all, all the ministry of today, those people would be doing quite well. We saw that in microcosm, just in the tithing system that God placed in Israel as it was administered in Worldwide Church of God. When that many people gave that percentage of their money, there was plenty of money to do everything that needed to be done. Now, where the problem came, as I see it, is that it talks about the second tithe and the third tithe being for the widow, the orphan, uh, the stranger, and the Levites. But the Levites took the lion's share of that. And when you went to the feast, the ministry stayed in this fine motel over here, and the widow stayed in this rat-infested one over there. That, to me, is a problem, since both categories are supposed to be properly taken care of by that second tithe and third tithe. And when you show favoritism to these, over these, you have a problem. That is the spiritual abuse that we had in Worldwide. The widows should have given, been given just as much, if not more, consideration than the ministry was given. That is why I stay in the same type of accommodations most of you stay in. We have to get these things straightened out and get them right. But does, be, does the fact that worldwide abused the money as it came in mean that the system was wrong? The system is that which God instituted a long time ago. But the misuse and abuse was something that man did. And I can only apologize for that, because in the 60s and 70s, I stayed in some of the nicer motels and made budgets for widows. And we ate differently than the widows. They ate in their room or whatever they could get by with while the ministry had a fine feast laid out every day. That was wrong. Absolutely wrong. But do we throw out the baby with the bathwater? See, that's not right either. So he says here to Timothy, in administering the funds, and that is the context, is the church being charged for widows or for the ministry, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. That is monetary, the laborer being worthy of his reward. Now, you might say the ox and the corn isn't, but corn is more important to an ox than dollar bills. Would an ox be happy if you gave him a lot of green dollars? See, his money is corn. And he'll keep bellering and bawling if you just feed him dollars. 
Now, if you just feed a worker corn and don't give him dollars today, he would beller and whine. But he brings out both here, the principle of the Old Testament with the ox and the laborer who is paid with money. He uses both. So I don't think that you could confuse the context here. The subject is money. And he says, if anything, if someone especially is working in the word and doctrine, to give them a double salary. Pay them double what anyone else would receive. That's the principle from God. Why? Because he wants the spiritual side of things emphasized. Because to him, that is the most important. Now, our society pays people the most based on what they consider important, don't they? How much do school teachers receive in comparison to athletes and movie stars? Now, which is the most important, an athlete or a movie star or a teacher of children? Using this principle, I would say that teachers should receive twice, well, <laughs> at least twice what a movie star or a, an athlete would receive. I say that partly tongue-in-cheek because I think in God's administration in the millennium, an athlete or a movie star will receive nothing. They will have no value in terms of monetary value. But teachers and those who deal with the spiritual will be held in high regard. And we as kings and priests are going to what? Have the finest city that has ever been conceived or thought of. And we'll be that city. And we'll have streets paved with gold, and our character will be gold, and we will have everything you could possibly dream of. Because God honors that. So we need to emotionally set aside sometimes those things that we have seen where abuse has been rendered, and it has. And I say that in shame. We're trying to stop that. The buck stops here. And there's no way I'm going to take a double salary. In fact, I haven't taken a salary in about a year now because I have wanted to put it in other things that I feel are more important than that. I have the power to, and you told me I should. But for the last year, I have not. Actually, more than a year now. Yes, some expenses and various things have come out of it, but a salary per se, no. And certainly not an inflated one, I'll guarantee you that. And I've done it on purpose. Because of abuses of the past and because I was a part of that. And God is not happy with the ministry today and he wants some things changed. So the buck stops here. All right, let's go to Second Testament Pat. Talk Second Thessalonians, uh, chapter three. Verse six. We'll start there. Now we command you, brethren. He had the power to command, to order. There's one place. I don't know whether I wrote it down or not. Yeah, I did. Uh, we'll we'll get to it. 
The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which you received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing. He did eat men's bread, but not for nothing. He didn't deserve to eat unless he worked. No man should eat unless he works. But we worked with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example to you to follow us. In other words, he felt that sacrificing himself and working for nothing and setting an example of service that is a living sacrifice was more important than charging them that he might live off them. But at times, as we've already seen, they did. But that power was there. Again, he mentions that. Second Corinthians 9, uh, I don't think I'll turn and read that one. It's the one I just referred to. But he ordered them to give an offering. He didn't suggest it. He didn't ask it. He ordered them to give an offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem because there was a drought in the Jerusalem area and people were on the verge of starving to death. So he ordered the fruit be picked and prepared so they could be shipped back with him when he went to Jerusalem. So he even had the power not only to suggest or to ask, but to order it in certain circumstances and had no compunctions about doing so. Now let's go to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. This is a very, very important passage to understand in terms of the ministry today and in terms of tithing or anything else that the ministry has to do with today. Now let's see if we can understand. Some people say that Hebrews 7 does away with tithing, does away with the priesthood, because it says something about annulment. Uh, does it indeed do that, or does it not? Now remember to whom Paul is writing here. He's writing to the Hebrews, to the Jews, to those people who had a background with Abraham, Moses, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then later with Moses, who had a background with the Scriptures, the Old Testament. They are now New Testament converts. They have become not just physical Jews, but more importantly, spiritual Jews. And he's trying to explain to them what has happened. They knew nothing but the Old Testament. To this day, January 2004, most of them have not accepted Jesus Christ at all. Now, these few to whom Paul was speaking have. And he's explaining to them how things are now as opposed to how they were. So this should cause our ears to come up because God is, or Paul is explaining to spiritual Jews what is important to spiritual Jews. And that's what you and I are. No matter our background, our nationality, our color, or anything else, we are spiritual Jews if we are part of God's church that Christ built today. 
They're all Jews. Okay? Let's go into chapter 7. He's speaking of Jesus Christ in chapter 6, verse 20, where the forerunner for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What Paul is going to explain is that Christ was there as a high priest long before the Levitical priesthood was ever formed. Before there ever even was a Jew, Jesus Christ was a high priest. Chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Now he brings up that Christ was a high priest and that Abraham saw fit to give him a tenth of everything. In other words, somehow, some way, Abraham knew that Christ was a high priest, there was a priesthood, and that he was to give Christ 10%. He didn't just guess at what percentage, or a suggested retail price, as we might say today. He knew it wasn't 7 or 8 or 43%, but 10%. Very cognizant of that. Without father, verse 3, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. So Jesus Christ was there before Moses, before the Levites. He was there during the Levite period, the Levitical period. And Paul is saying he's still here today. The Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't start. He won't have an end. He's always been here. So he's saying, the one that I am preaching to you about is someone that has always been. This is important. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now, understand that the context here is not tithing. The context is who Jesus Christ is. And tithing and all other subjects come under that. See, the Jews, some of them still tithe, some of them still believe in tithing. But most of them still do not believe in Jesus Christ. That is what is important here. And anything then that goes with Christ becomes important because of Christ. It is interesting that he used the example of tithing to explain who Christ was. In other words, there was a high priest before Levi was born, and that high priest did take of tithes before the law of Moses ever existed. Not only was Abraham willing to pay them, but Christ was willing to take them. And those ties did not just consist of agricultural products, but Abraham realized that whatever his increase might be, 
Melchizedek should receive a tenth. In this particular example, it was the spoils of war. That to him was an increase. Now, if he gave it back to those people after the war, or whatever he did with it, is neither here nor there. The point is, he gave Melchizedek 10% first, and then the rest he could dispose of as he saw fit. Give it back, keep it, whatever he wished to do. Verse 5, And truly, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. Now, we believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Though it's not stated at the beginning, it appears to be the case. Remember I said something about power that Paul mentioned several times, power to take from the people? Here he gives you a clue as to where he got that power. It was from the one who was Melchizedek, who became Jesus Christ, who also instituted the tithing system, because he is there yesterday, today, and forever. So he said the priesthood had a commandment to take tithes of the people, and that's where Paul got his authority to take funds from the people. I won't call them tithes here. We'll get to that a little later on. According to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So these people came from Abraham through Levi, but it really goes back to Melchizedek, to the king of Salem, the king of peace, who is Jesus Christ. And then he explains, verse 6, But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Who had he given the promises to? Abraham. And he blessed Abraham as a direct result of the tithes given to Melchizedek. That is the context. He was blessed for tithing. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek or Christ. Verse 8. And here, currently, as he writes this, here men that died receive tithes. So he's showing that not only did you give them to Christ directly, and I don't know how that was done, it is not explained, did Christ show up when the kids were born, or did he show up at feast time? Did he show up at certain times when you had an increase, let's say you went to war and suddenly you had the spoils of war, did Christ swoop down and say, all right, give me my sin? I don't think so. It has generally been or I guess you could almost say always been, that God has administered those things through men. Now, Abraham, not having any other priesthood there, might have given them directly to Christ. Or maybe he reserved them for a specific purpose, I don't know. But they were earmarked and given to God, whether he handed them to Melchizedek, or whether it was handled in a different administrative fashion, we know not. 
But here he says, the men that die do receive tithes. But there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. But it does indicate, perhaps, that he, that Abraham gave them directly to Christ. I don't know how you would do that today. Christ said, I'm not going to often appear to you anymore. He said he did appear more often in the Old Testament and even to the apostles. He said, you're not going to see much of me until my second coming. And he only came a few times after that. Took Paul out in the desert for one instance. But very rarely has he been seen of men since he said that. Okay, verse 9, And as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi hadn't been born, but his tithing went way back beyond that to Father Abraham. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, now he's saying perfection did not come through the Levitical priesthood, but he's saying tithing predated the Levitical priesthood, and that Melchizedek predated Moses and the Levites, that there was a priesthood. For under it the people received the law. It says, Paul explains in other, in other places that the law came as a result of sin. The law did not exist first. God did not codify the law. He taught Adam and Eve. He taught Cain and Abel. They knew about sacrifices. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. There were preachers before Abraham ever came along. Enoch was a preacher. So, religious, spiritual information was being disseminated long before Moses ever codified the law. And God judged his, or God judge man according to the spiritual law before it was codified as a physical law. Codified it? Did I really say that? It was stammering. It wasn't really that I don't know the word. And they understood the meaning of sacrifice. They understood the meaning of tithing. They understood the meaning of righteousness. Else how could no one have been a preacher of righteousness? So righteousness was understood before the law was actually ever written down. Verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? In other words, you didn't get it under the Old Testament administration, so there has to be a different priesthood. A new priesthood. Jesus Christ now is the high priest. For the priesthood being changed, not obliterated, changed. There is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now the law wasn't done away, the law was changed. To accommodate a different priesthood. To accommodate a covenant made on better promises. There had to be a change. And God is offering you and me something he never offered 
those Old Testament Israelites, except in a few cases, and that is eternal life. So there is definitely a change there. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. Now, one of the arguments people give is that since the Levitical priesthood no longer exists, then there is no one to take tithes. But Paul is explaining very clearly here that the high priest we have today predated Moses and Levi. He took tithes then. Way back. And that he is the new high priest. Therefore, there is a precedent for the high priest of old, before Aaron was ever a twinkling in his father's eye, to take tithes. And that that priesthood that then existed before Moses has now come to the forefront in the form of Jesus Christ who is the head of the church, the body. And he was not a Levite. He was a Jew. According to the law of Moses, Jesus Christ could not have been a high priest, nor could he have taken tithes. But Paul is explaining that he can do both, that he is both. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. It was illegal for Christ to have been a priest, or to have taken tithes under Moses. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who is made not after the law of the carnal commandments, but after the power of an endless life. You see, he's showing the change in the law here. But now we have a covenant based on better promises, and that promise is endless or eternal life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Levi died. The Levitical priesthood all died. Jesus Christ will never die. And we are to be kings and priests, are we not, in the world tomorrow under Christ? And are we not today priests, kings and priests in training? We are not of the Levitical priesthood. We are of Jesus Christ, a Jew. And we have become then spiritual Jews and spiritual kings and priests. So there is definitely a priesthood today based on Christ being the high priest. Well, if you're high, you've got to be over something, don't you? Well, then, what is he over? The high priest is above the rest of the priests. He's above the rest of the people. And Jesus Christ is over the priesthood, which we call a ministry today, and it was called that in the early New Testament church. They were not called priests as such. They were called ministers or servants. That's all the word means, servants of the people. Not to rule as the Gentiles rule and as some rule today in the church, but to be servants of the people. Verse 18, For this, there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and profit, unprofitableness thereof. Did that old covenant profit the people in any lasting way? 
No, it was a physical covenant based on physical promises. And they broke that covenant, and God said it was because of the fault of the people that they were not blessed, because they didn't keep that law. So that commandment, that law, as a physically binding law, was annulled and changed to a spiritual set of principles, which Christ elevated in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Took the same laws and elevated them so that they were even more binding. But not only were they binding in terms of what we physically do, but what we think and every thought has to come under the law. And those commandments are still in effect because in Revelation 21, the parting shot, he says we will enter life if we keep the commandments. So those commandments are still there. The physical part of having to do physical animal sacrifices and that part of it is gone for the moment. It'll be back in the millennium when we have a physical nation established again, at least for a while it will be, because Isaiah 66 says so. But for the time being, it has been elevated to a spiritual understanding based on the Old Testament commandments. For the law made nothing perfect, verse 19, but the bringing in of a better hope did. A better hope is eternal life. By the which we draw near to God, and inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this was an oath by him that said to him, The Lord swore and will not repent, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Christ's priesthood is an everlasting priesthood as decreed by his Father, or the one who became his Father. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, that is, eternal life. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. You know, the priesthood kept revolving because they got old and died. But this man, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, the kind we need is one who is holy, was harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. We have been offered eternal life, so we have to have a high priest who is able to offer us that. Who needs not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. He became the sacrifice. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity. Still does. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, makes the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Now these things which you have spoken, this is the Son. Here is what he's been driving at in this chapter. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. He's bringing forward those Old Testament things, the altar, uh, the Ten Commandments, 
through Christ, with a better promise. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, uh, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. He has to have something to offer us, otherwise his priesthood means nothing. Christ has offered us a lot more than anyone has ever been offered. And he's been around. Now, is there a priesthood today in the church? Now, there was a New Testament ministry. I don't think there's any way that anyone could deny that. And we've already seen scriptures that indicate they should live of the gospel, but that power and that ability and that right is certainly there. But is there a priesthood today after the order of Melchizedek? I think we can use an example in Zechariah 3 to show that is indeed the case. We do not need the Levitical priesthood today because God has instituted a new priesthood with Jesus Christ being the high priest in the heavens. But here we have, in the setting of the end-time prophecies, and in the setting of the very end time with Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two witnesses of Revelation 11. And what does it say? Zechariah 3, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you. So within the Melchizedek priesthood, the New Testament ministry under Jesus Christ, Christ set offices, apostles, prophets, and so on. And these two, Joshua and Zerubbabel, in this context, are called prophets in Zechariah 11 when they are given power to be prophets to the world. But even though Jesus Christ is the high priest in the heavens, he designates a man as a high priest among men in the end-time church. So from this, we can easily see that there is a priesthood today. And indeed, as I said before, we are all called to be kings and priests. What did James and Peter call us? A holy priesthood. And we are after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, there are someone, there are people around who are authorized, who have the power given in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, Melchizedek, to take tithes. Paul said he had that power. And he reiterates here in Hebrews 7 that the Melchizedek priesthood, of which the ministry today is a part, and we are all a part of the Melchizedek priesthood, has the right to take tithes. That right was there long before Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses ever walked the earth. And therefore, if it was there in Jesus Christ, then it is still there today in the Melchizedek priesthood. Larry is a part of the Melchizedek priesthood. Nelson Nichols is a part of the Melchizedek priesthood. Every one of you sitting here who are baptized today are a part, in that sense, of the Melchizedek priesthood. 
a royal priesthood. And Paul shows that that priesthood has the power to take funds of the people. Now, let's get more to the question. Specifically, does that power extend to tithing? Well, I think we already see, based on Hebrews 7, that since the Melchizedek priesthood had that power before Levi, and that has now supplanted Levi, there has been a change in the priesthood and a change in the law, now the Melchizedek priesthood has whatever power had been granted before. And they had the power to take tithes in the form of Melchizedek in particular before Moses. So the power and the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood was established long ago. Now, do we have any clues that the end-time church is not just to take offerings, but to take tithes? Now, let me make one more point about the agricultural part of this. We've already seen that Abraham gave to the Melchizedek priesthood not only tithes of agriculture, that is not even mentioned in particular, but the spoils of war, in other words, of increase. Increase is defined as any of that or anything which enriches you or makes you better off or allows you to eat, drink, and have food and clothes. Spoils of war did that. Agricultural production did that. It wasn't just food, but they, the produce of the land provided food, clothing, and shelter for those people. They ate the meat, drank the milk, ate the eggs, whatever. They spun the wool or used the leather and made clothes, and they made tents out of the hides. So they had food, clothing, and shelter. Now, how does that translate to the early New Testament church? To whom was Paul writing? He was not writing to an agricultural society. He was writing to the people in Thessalonica, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Corinth, city dudes. That's who he was writing to. They did not have agricultural products, except maybe an herb garden in their backyard where they had men and come in ants, or whatever else. But they earned their living basically as wage earners. And he said that that priesthood, the New Testament ministry, had authority and power to take money from those people. So it was not just agricultural products. He said the laborer is worthy of his hire there in First Timothy 5.17. So they were paid in money, and that is how they were increased. What did the money do? Now, in an agricultural society, you use the products of agriculture to provide food, clothing, and shelter. And you could turn it into money and haul it to the feast, since it was really hard to put all those animals in the back of your SUV. So you could turn it into money. Your SUV was four-legged and had a tail that switched back and forth. 
and it was hard to put cows and goats on a donkey. So you turned it into money. And they did have money. But what does a wage earner do? What does his wages provide? Food, shelter, clothing. Those are the basic necessities. So whether you have a farm and you eat it and wear it and live under it, or you are a wage earner and buy something to live and wear, it's the same process. And we've already seen that included the spoils of war, which were what? Jewelry, clothing, horses, uh, donkeys, weapons, the things that they used. Food that the armies happened to be carrying with them. Now, let's go. Now, let's go soon, but let's go to Amos 4. I want to show you some things here. In Amos, now this one has been used with that argument which we've already seen doesn't hold water about only tithing every third year. Let's, but this one is also used in that line of thinking. Let's get the context. One of the first rules, if not the first rule of Bible study is context. Now you can rip verse 4 out of context and say, well, you only have to tithe every three years. But you're doing violence to, you're stealing from the context, and in that sense making a lie if you do not consider the context, all of which are against the commandments. Chapter 4. Now let's understand, Amos is a book written to the end-time church and secondarily to end-time Israel, both spiritual Jew and physical Jew, or physical Israelite. Hear this word, you cattle of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria. Now, this could apply to the physical nation and its mountain or government, and Samaria is the capital of the northern ten tribes. So, to all Israel, or we might say today, the government of the church, which represents spiritual Judah and spiritual Israel, because the church is the Israel of God which oppress the poor, which crush the needy. The church did oppress the poor and crush the needy in order to trip over themselves taking care of the ministry. So already it fits. But what is the context here? Is it the feast? Is it first tithe for the ministry? No. It's taking care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger within your gates. In other words, the context here is third tithe and third tithe only. You government, whether it be physical government or spiritual government, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. In other words, they hobnob with the rich. Don't care about the widow and the orphan and the poor and the needy, the hobnob with the masters. Teachers, ministers can apply either way. Which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. Don't worry about the poor. Don't worry about the widow. Don't worry about anybody like that. Let's have a party. Let's feast. 
The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Ever see what happens to a fish that gets on a hook? It's drug in the boat. And it dies there. And you shall go out of the breaches, that is, breaches in the wall, because God is going to tear down the walls. Hasn't he taken the hedge away from the church? And is he not about to take a hedge away from physical Israel? I witness 9-11 and other breaches which will come. Bigger breaches than that. You shall go out of the breaches every cow at that which is before her. Kind of the shan. This could be a warning to wealthy ladies, wealthy churches, wealthy organs. And you shall cast them into the palace. And a better translation is, you shall cast away the things of the palace. In other words, those who govern in Washington and other governments, and those who govern in the church, are going to have the things taken away from the palaces. It's already been done in worldwide, and it's going to be done in other organizations as well. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bethel is where they kept the feasts. And bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. In other words, we're talking about the poor and the needy, and you've been using the third tithe for yourselves. And he's throwing this in their face. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this is like you, O you children of Israel, says the eternal of God, the eternal God. Now, what is, what is his pronouncement as a result of oppressing the poor and the needy? Not giving them the benefit of the tithe every third year. I have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. If you don't have anything to eat, you don't pick your teeth. They're clean. Yet have you not returned to me, says the eternal. What has he done to the church? He's given a spiritual famine. He's blown us apart. Because we did not take care of the widow and the orphan and use third tithe correctly. It is there for the Levite as well, according to the law, but the ministry got the lion's share of it. And that is an abuse and a misuse. So God says he's going to take it away from the governments of the church and the nation. Now, this is an end-time prophecy, and I want you to note that the church at the end, and the physical government at the end, are held responsible for third tithe. God brings up third tithe in the context of the end-time church and the day of the Lord in the book of Amos. Therefore, if he brings up third tithe, it must still be in effect. And I do not know that I have the authority, and it might be presuming an awful lot, to say, well, the government's taking care of this in taxes. I made that comment last week, and I thought about Amos 4 since then, and wondered if I might not have spoken out of school a bit. 
Now, maybe you have to live with your own conscience in that, but here he's talking to the governments and saying, whether it be the church or physical Israel, you have not used third tithe properly. And as a result, there's famine and cleanness of teeth, and you masters who hobnobbed with the rich are going without as well. Now, let's go to Malachi. I know that Malachi is not a New Testament book per se. But is there any organization, or are there any members of the Church of God, spiritual Jews today, who have not at one time or another pointed to Malachi 1, 2, and 3, and said, this is talking about the end-time ministry. Is there anybody left in the church who does not apply Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 to the end-time ministry? I doubt it. Even those who say tithing is done away and have no use for the ministry today whatsoever apply Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi to the day, to today's ministry. Now, if you bring up tithing, they will dismiss that and say that is only a Levitical thing, and if you're not a part of the Levitical priesthood, which is done away with, you cannot accept tithes and do not have the power to take them. But out of the, of the other side of their mouth, they say that Malachi and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about the New Testament ministry. Now, you can't have it both ways. The Old Testament prophecies about the end time either apply in all aspects of life or they do not apply in any aspect of life. You cannot pick and choose which you would like to pin the tail of the donkey on today. So if you say Malachi 1, 2, and 3 is talking about the ministry today, then if it mentions tithing, it also has to do with the ministry today. You can't have it both ways. I was on my way to Malachi. Malachi is an end-time book. It addresses the end-time church. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Did Jesus Christ suddenly come to his temple the first time he came? No. He came as a babe, and he grew up, and he formed a temple later in life. This is a passage saying he is going to suddenly come to a temple which is already prepared. So it has to be something referring to a time after he built a temple, does it not? Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Who is the messenger of the new covenant? Jesus Christ. He's the one we delight in. I don't delight in Moses and Levi. I delight in Jesus Christ, the Melchizedek priesthood, the king of Salem, king of peace. 
Behold, he shall come, the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? It wasn't hard to abide the day of his first coming. He was just a baby. That wasn't too hard to take. Who shall stand when he appeareth? When he comes, in the context of which this scripture is speaking, it is going to be a rare person who can stand in his presence. He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. That's not his first coming. That's referring to his return. He shall sit as a refiner and purify of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. They didn't do it in righteousness before. (coughs) So what he is referring to here is Christ's return and what will happen. And the ministry in the temple that he is returning to suddenly is the church. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the eternal as in the days of old and as in former years. It will be in the millennium, and it will be when he returns. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and against false wearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, my judgment is going to come upon the category of people who are not obeying my laws, who are performing these sins listed in verse 5. His judgment is coming, and he is going to purify I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, I promised Abraham that I would preserve you as I have, and I keep my word, otherwise I would have consumed you a long time ago, because you never have obeyed me. Even from the days of your fathers you were gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, isn't that what all the prophecies about the end times say? When you sum them up, turn to me with your whole heart, turn to me, turn to me, and I will turn to you. Cause and effect. That's what all the prophecies say. But you said, wherein shall we return? And most of the church says, we've been good, we've been little Philadelphians here, We've been praying and paying and staying, and we've been keeping the Sabbath and going to the feast. We're okay. What is wrong with this? We say. God then asks the question, will a man rob God? It's essentially the same question that the young rich man brought to Christ. I've done this and this and this and this. What do I lack? Well, you're covetous. Your God is materialism and money. You're not keeping the first four commandments because you're breaking the last one. And he puts the same thing to you and me here at the end. Will a man rob God? What is robbery? It is thievery. It is breaking the commandment against stealing. It is a breaking of the Ten Commandments. So God is saying, will a man steal from God? 
Now a thief will not enter the kingdom of God, along with drunken and disorderly and idolaters and adulterers, will not be in the kingdom of God. Very clear. Will a man rob God? Interesting what example he uses. <coughs> Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed you? How did we rob you, God? In tithes and offerings. He's talking to the end time church, saying, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. The context is the second return of Christ and his judgment upon us. Now, he uses the Levite as a type here, because the Levitical priesthood had not yet been established by Christ until he came. There was a change in the law, and he took it clear back to Melchizedek, and the tithes that were given to Melchizedek, and brought it forward to the new priesthood under Jesus Christ, the high priest. And God uses the example of tithes and offerings as a way in which we have been thieves in breaking the Ten Commandments. Now, this might not have been understood years ago in the church, because most people were tithing. But now, when God has blown it apart, people have leaned to their own understanding, and they have misused and abused Scripture and put them aside and they have used emotional abuse and monetary abuse by the ministry to justify throwing all this out the window. And God says, you can't do that. It doesn't matter that the church misused and abused. This is between you and me, God says. You have robbed me. Because I prescribed long before Levi that righteous people would tithe. It's a part of righteousness. Abraham's righteousness and Jacob's righteousness. And the end time church is held liable. Right here. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me even this whole people be it spiritual Israel or, ultimately, physical Israel. But he's coming to his temple, and his temple is a spiritual organism. So the force of this context is the church, not physical Israel. You are cursed with a curse, even this whole people. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, says the eternal of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. He's talking to the fragmented, blown out, puked, spewed, end-time church. Now, in the book of Haggai, he talks about the two witnesses having the remnant faithful church drawn to them, and he says, you've lived in your houses, find homes, he says, leave them, 
come and build my temple. You've had wages that you brought home and you had a hole in the bag and they all go away. You don't have enough to live on. And people say it's not time to build my temple or God's church. But God says there comes a time when we not only put his church first, but we leave our paneled homes and come and build his temple. In other words, the same thing he told the young rich man, give all you have to the poor, come and follow me. Build a temple. And anyone who says that that applies is going to be told it is not time to build the temple. Well, if God has blown it apart for unrighteousness, isn't it time to build it back correctly? Isn't it time for you and me to repent of whatever abuses we have done to God, to the sheep, to each other, to mend the holes, to stop the breaches, and be called the repairers of the breach. And God uses tithes as a specific, tithes and offerings, as a specific reason that he is angry and wrathful today. Now, this may not be popular, brethren, but I am supposed to cry aloud and spare not and tell God's people their sins, not to condemn them, but to give them opportunity to repent and get the relationship with God right so that they may be blessed and prove God herewith, whether he will pour out a blessing or not. And it's written not to somebody way back then, it's written to us who live at the end time. With the return of Jesus Christ imminent, when he will suddenly come to his temple. He is concerned about tithes and offerings right now. And he will rebuke the devourer, and he will not destroy the fruits of our ground, which he has done in terms of the spiritual harvest. And all peoples will call you blessed, verse 12, for you shall be a delightsome land, says the Eternal. Your words have been stout against me, says the Eternal, yet you say, what have we spoken so much against you? We're for God. We don't realize what it is we've been doing, and we need to wake up. You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, his laws, his ways, of which he mentions tithe as one of them right here in this context. But we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. In other words, it's such a burden to obey. Which burden do people want to cast off more than any other? Tithing and offering. It's such a burden to keep first, second, and third tithe. It's such a burden to offerings. What is eternal life worth? And now we call the proud happy. We call Revelation 3, anyone who claims to be Philadelphian happy. Everything's wonderful. Hunky-dory. Peachy-key. We tithed all those years where our blessings. God has blown it apart. Now he says, tithe and see if I will not bless you. Here is a challenge God puts before you and me. 
Then they that feared the Eternal spoke one to another often, and the Eternal hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Eternal, that thought upon his name, and they shall be mine, says the Eternal Post, in that day when I make up my jewels. What are we called? His jewels in Revelation 2 and 3 and in other scriptures. This is talking to the New Testament church, not ancient Israel. They've been divorced, forget them, until the second resurrection. His jewels are today's church. That's whom he is addressing here. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves God and him that serves him not. And then he talks about the day of the Lord and the two witnesses, because that is the context here. Well, that's a good place to end this, and I'm way out of time with some other questions that I want to answer administratively, but maybe we'll have to save that until next time.